The best healthcare system in the world is South Central Foundation's NUCA System of Care in Alaska. They are the only healthcare system that has won the President's Malcolm Baldrige Award twice, once in 2011 and again in 2017. Countries come from all over the world to Alaska to learn how the NUCA system of care can be so much better than all the other systems, half the cost with far better outcomes. I'm gonna play for you a series of four videos that tell the story of the NUCA system of care. The first video is a portion of a documentary film done by David Grubin. The film is called The Quiet Revolution. The next video is a portion of a conference put on by the Canadian Health Service Research Foundation called Picking Up the, P the Pace. The next is a short video describing Dr. Eby's Analogy of the Rock and the Bird, again by The Quiet Revolution, a film by De David Grubin. The final video is an interview with Ben Collins from the King's Fund that he did with Dr. Doug Eby, Vice President of Medical Services for South Central Foundation. The links to all four videos will be available or which are available on YouTube will be posted along with this webinar later today on Going on Offense. Three thousand miles from San Francisco, I visited a healthcare system in Alaska that is encouraging thousands of Alaskan Native people to take responsibility for their own health and put an end to suffering that has endured for generations. We are, from the depths of our heart, trying to be healthy people. And it's not an easy journey. We've had a rough, rough life and history. And the rising up right now is right here. It's right here, the brightness of what's happening. I think we didn't know what we didn't know. First, we didn't know how huge a endeavor this would be. And we didn't know how terrified we probably should be in attempting wholesale revision of what was a model that had been in place for a hundred years. But I said to myself, well, we couldn't screw it up worse than it is. Over many decades, the health of the Alaska Native people had been entrusted to the Indian Health Service, the IHS, a federal agency unequal to the task. In Anchorage, the IHS attempted to deliver medical care to tens of thousands of Native Alaskans through a hospital emergency room. If you had a broken arm, if your baby had strep throat, if you had a cold, everyone showed up through the emergency room. So if you can imagine, it didn't matter what day it was, it was always jam-packed. Yeah. So how did you experience it from your end as a doc? Oh, it was terribly frustrating. I mean, there was people that you would see that you know that it was unlikely you would ever see them again. And you didn't manage them as individuals, you managed diseases and visits. It was kind of just a classic medical model of you show up, you get seen in an exam room, you get a diagnosis and some medication, you go home. Nobody wanted to go there. They weren't very kind. They talked about you like you weren't there. Catherine Gottlieb 
The Sukpiak Alaskan from a remote village of a hundred people would lead the sweeping changes that would revolutionize health care for the Alaska Native people. In 1987, she went to work in Anchorage for the tiny South Central Foundation. She began as a receptionist in the South Central Dental Office. I had never run an organization, but personally, receiving care from the hospital, I knew inside my heart what people didn't like. So I went back to school and I got my bachelor's and master's degree while working and, um, and raising kids. I had six children, and um, eventually I became an associate planner and then became the deputy director. And this happened within a period of four years. Catherine and I and others at the time talked about kind of what would we do, what did we think would work if she and the Alaska Native community could just get their hands on the system and, and on the resources to make it happen. The whole place needed to be changed. And what I felt was we could run that hospital. <laughs> we could run the whole entire hospital. In 1998, with Catherine as CEO, the South Central Foundation took over from the failing Indian Health Service. Native Alaskans were now responsible for their own health, owners of a health care system serving only Alaska Native people. Eventually, 65,000 of them across more than 100,000 square miles. Primary care became central to their mission. What we wanted to do is develop a system where everybody's working as a team. So the likelihood that we're going to have a swing and a miss and have an adverse event is actually infinitesimally much smaller as multiple eyes with multiple perspectives, with multiple abilities to adjust, all are all looking at the same thing. If I miss it, one of my partners will probably catch it. Today, South Central doctors are surrounded by pharmacists, behavioral psychologists, dietitians, and midwives, all sharing information in real time. Now, I grew up with a father who was a solo practitioner. And in my father's day, the doctor really was the hero. He, his authority ruled. And that comes with a burden because all the decisions, all the outcomes, all the events that ensue are all on you. If you are the Captain Kirk lead from the front, you know, whatever happens, it's all yours. You owned it lock, stock, and barrel. Hi, how can I help you? Patients can get an appointment the very day they call, and there is almost no waiting. In time, South Central came to call their patients customer owners. Customer owner was a very important concept for us to take on and to understand. We own it now. So we had to really change how we think about ourselves as Native people. It's different when um, you have no expectation. You just get what you get. Now we take responsibility to make sure you get to your appointment because that's a resource, that you're prepared with your questions when you go there, that when you leave, you've got the answers that you need. We're not just a patient. We're not passive. We're not people that um, we're going to be in there for them to do things to us, but we're going to do a journey of wellness together. We should feel our heart working. 
So here's your Catherine had no doubt that, you know, a completely customer-driven, customer-owned, customer-oriented system was possible. But bringing the medical staff along on this journey was going to be a challenge. You're trained basically to do diagnosis, treatment plan, and then sending them on their way. You give someone an instruction sheet and say, here, do this, and then you wish them good luck, and you ignore their existence until they show back up again in your office. The real journey, though, is what they do when they're at home. I would come up with these complicated medical regimes for this drug and that drug, and then what we would do is we would mail them out to people in boxes every 90 days, you know, faithfully. And I went out one time and I said, okay, well, well, show me how you're doing with your medicines. And they said, oh yeah, no, they're all over here. And I said, okay, great, that's great. And what they took me over to is a corner of the kitchen as I went to their home and they had four little boxes. And they said, no, that we saved them. And I'm like, well, it, it seems that these boxes are unopened. Um, can you tell me about that? And they said, oh yeah, no, we have them. We, we, we don't, you know, it was a little complicated, so we just decided to save them. I'm like, huh. So I've been adjusting these microscopic doses of these different medicines and combinations, and they have been very faithfully stored on your kitchen countertop. Brilliant. So we said, these are only going to be effective plans if the people that we serve are fully engaged and committed to acting on them. Morning. <clears throat> so Don has kind of laid out some of how we got to where we are, who we are, and how we think. And to a lot of Alaska Native people, particularly the elders that we were listening very closely to, this just made a lot of sense. That this business of these operational principles and the relationship-based way of thinking a lot of the people in the community just went, well, yeah, that's how we live life. But we had to apply this to a medical system. We had to take those operational principles that changed vision and mission, and we had to translate it into a delivery system that made sense. And most of our staff um, at the time we took over were non-native people, and particularly the medical professionals for the most part were non-native people, even, and even those who were Alaska Native, um, such as Donna, had gone through medical school and residency and so forth and had been trained into a whole different medical culture and medical way of thinking. We thought we were pretty good at this project-based kind of stuff where we'd fix this and then this and then this and we'd apply this kind of fishbone cause and effect diagrams and all this kind of stuff. But it wasn't until Alaska Native people took over the system fully and completely in 1997 and 98 and 99, kind of gradually over those years, and they came in and said, fine, you're doing some good stuff here, but the system is fundamentally wrong. The whole basis, the underpinnings of the system are wrong. And we insist that the system be rebuilt upon what the customers, the customer owners, the Alaska Native people want, and that the professionals adapt to what they wanted rather than the other way around. Does that make sense? And I'm going to tell you that this isn't just about customer control, but it's actually about producing good medicine, good health care, good outcomes, and good value for money. So it's not just about making people happy. It's actually a much, much better design system. And we went from project-based fixed little pieces of the system to whole system transformation. And if there's anything about the SCF Nuka model of care story, that's the part that you need to take home with you. So before I jump into my, my favorite diagram, let me make one more illustration that maybe kind of helps make the point. Don Berwick, who was the head of IHI for over 20 years and is now the head of CMS for the U.S., Center for Medicaid and Medicare for the U.S., 
has a story he likes to tell, and Don knows I do this, so I'm not you know, being too offensive to Don or anything, but he has this story he talks about a car, and he had this car, I think it was a 10-year-old Toyota or something, he took it out on this flat stretch of road, and he put the accelerator down, and its top speed was 105 miles an hour. And no matter how much Don yelled at the car, or encouraged the car, or gave it pay for performance, or anything else, the car would not go faster than 105 miles an hour because it was engineered to produce exactly what it was producing, right? Every system is designed to produce exactly what it's producing because by definition that's what it's producing. So Don's story is, his analogy is, in order to change the car, you have to change the parts of the car. So you have to fix the transmission, you have to change the tires, you have to put in a new engine, you have to use different oil and different gas, and eventually you can make a car that can go 150 or 200 or whatever miles per hour, right? Nice visual analogy, makes sense. And I love the analogy, but for very different reasons than Don does. Don uses it to show that if you're going to improve health care, you have to go back and re-engineer piece by piece the healthcare system in order to get a different healthcare system in the end. Sounds good, right? Well, kind of, if your purpose, if your goal is to make the car as good a car as it possibly can be. If your goal is to make healthcare as good as healthcare can be, just go in and fix the parts of healthcare and you'll get a better healthcare. But let's go back to what the purpose of the car is. The purpose of the car is to transport people from point A to point B, right? And if all you do is fix the car, all you will ever have is a car. But if you have 500,000 people to move from point A to point B, Maybe you need a train or an airplane or a boat or something like that. And if all you need to do is run to the grocery store for a loaf of bread and come back, maybe you need a bicycle or a set of cross-country skis or something like that. And again, our elders told this right away when we started talking to them. We took over the system in 1997, 98, 99. The first thing we did was sit and talk to Alaska Native people at great length. For six months, we just listened, 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 listened. And at the end, we created these things called um, expectations of an idealized healthcare system, which eventually became our operational principles, which Donna showed you a few minutes ago. But one of the things they said is what this diagram shows, which is basically that the people in control of health outcomes longitudinally over time are not the professionals, but the people who have the health status issues. Okay? So that's what this shows. If you look at the diagram, on the vertical column is percent, 0% to 100%. So if you have two lines, they have to be inverses of each other, right? And then along the continuum on the bottom is low acuity to high acuity. So in high acuity situation, I get hit by a car on the street. I'm laying there unconscious. EMS scoops me up. They do a bunch of things to me in the ambulance. They take me to the ER. They do a bunch of things. They take me to the operating room. They do a bunch of things. They took intensive care, and they do a bunch of things. And in that setting, it's a very high acuity setting. I may even be unconscious, but at a minimum, I have relatively little to say about what's going on, and the system has a lot to say. So the patient has low control, the system has high control in a very high acuity situation where many decisions have to be made quickly to save a life. Okay? And I'm okay with that. In that setting, as long as my wishes overall are being followed, i.e. I want to be rescued, then that's a good thing. However, today, somewhere around 80% of the people and 70% of the money in healthcare is not on that end, it's on this end over here. 
low acuity settings. So I'm talking about low acuity inpatient, which is most inpatient care, I'm talking about medical offices, behavioral health, school clinics, nursing homes, assisted living, all kinds of residential treatment programs. The biggest part of chronic condition management and all of these things that we do in all of those categories of care are on this end, the relatively low acuity situations. And in those environments, the overwhelming power and control lies in the hands of the patient or the customer owner and their family or the immediate people around them. And this isn't whether we want to give them control, it's they already have control. So to illustrate this for primary care, because this is kind of a primary care conference, if I'm a doctor and someone comes to me in my office, <clears throat> we do our little thing in the office and then I send them on their way. And whether they go pick up their medications is under their control. It's surprising when you study it how many people actually don't even pick up their meds. Once they pick them up, how they take them is under their control. Do they cut them in half so they last longer? Do they pull out the pill bottle from last time because it helped me before, probably going to help me this time? Do I share with Donna because if it works for me, maybe it's going to work for you? Or I quit taking it in three days because now I feel better so I don't need them anymore. Or I quit taking them in three days because they have side effects, I don't feel so good, they're hurting me so I don't take them anymore. All of those things are under the patient's control or the customer owner's control. Whether they exercise, what they eat, whether they drink too much alcohol, whether they smoke, whether they use a walker, whether they use their inhaler, all these things that drive whether you get chronic conditions to start with and how well you live with them once you have them, almost completely the actual decisions day to day to day that decide whether they're going to get chronic conditions and how well they live with them are almost completely under their control. Anybody disagree? No? Well, if that's true, my question to you, especially if you're in primary care, is then why the heck are you perpetuating that system? Why do you get up every day and go to work and keep doing that system, which is, if you look at it rationally, for what it is you're trying to do, it makes no sense at all as a way to change health for population over time. have a target on the wall and what you have in your hand is a rock. You can throw the rock at the target and eventually through practice you can make the rock hit the target every time. I'm active, the rock is passive, I exert my will on the rock and make it do what I want which is to hit the target. But if I have in my hand a bird and the goal is for the bird to be at the target. I can push the bird with some force, I can aim it and push it towards the target. But whether the bird ends up at the target is almost completely dependent upon whether the bird decides to fly to the target or not. Now, if I put a bird house and some bird feed and its bird babies on the target, now it's way, way, way more likely that the bird will actually go to the target. Why? because I spent time understanding what was important to the bird. And I put things of value to the bird at the target that the bird cared about. This is healthcare. People are more like birds than rocks. They have will, they make their own decisions. My job is to influence the bird or the person to get to the target.
Now, your mission uh, statement focuses on the concept of wellness rather than treating uh, diseases. What does that mean to, in, in relation to how you do your work? Quite a while ago, we said that this business of disease-specific approaches really didn't work well for a vast majority of the people, especially those who cost us the most and visit us the most often. Many people have multiple conditions. There are multiple pathways given multiple medications and are not sure how to put that all together. We instead meet a person where they are, the whole person, mind and body back together, and then craft a plan with them that they're willing to do, incorporating disease-specific knowledge into the more comprehensive whole person plan. It's much more likely they'll do what they say they're going to do and actually get to better outcomes with that approach than just a linear, you know, here's your diabetes plan, here's your asthma plan, here's your HIV plan, hope you do all of them perfectly. Why are relationships so important? Right. This is the core of our entire system, is that understanding that at the end of the day, it's what the person does in their life living day to day that determines whether they get chronic conditions and how well they live with them or whether they decompensate to the point of needing medical care. So the person in control for most medical expenditures and outcomes these days is the person on the receiving side, the patient or as we refer to them, the customer owner. If that's true, then the main thing we can do is to try to influence what they do. And the only way you do that is through influential, long-term, trusting, personal relationships. So our medical practice is primarily about influential relationships, getting people to choose different things to be healthier over time. It also happens to be our management philosophy, because if you can get your staff internally motivated with passion around something they believe in, they're also going to go the extra mile. So our management philosophy, our clinical philosophy, same thing. What's truly innovative about your, not, your model? I think that part of what makes this really different is the part you can see easily first, which is the actual structure of the delivery system. So we have these primary care teams that are in close proximity where they sit and understand that relationship is their main business, but backed up then by integrated care teams so that people coming to us have access in the same day to the primary care provider, case manager, behaviorists, dietitian, pharmacist, and midwife. And that's all in the same place integrated for them to access um, any day they want for any reason they want. So that's the structural piece, but there's other layers behind that. We have spent a long time becoming very sophisticated around all the dimensions it takes to create a capable delivery system at scale, sustainable longitudinally over time. And that means a whole lot more emphasis on workforce development, improvement capability, leadership, alignment of um, activities and philosophy and corporate structure and philosophy over time, corporate culture, uh, with an extreme adherence and, and focus on results and outcomes. So that's kind of the second piece. And the third piece is developing a uh, true learning organization where every one of our 2,000 employees understands passionately what we're about, can speak to it, can act on it, and help mobilize in the direction that we're going. So what has been the impact on outcomes for your population? Right. We've seen huge difference. So our per capita um, visits to the emergency room are down by over 60%. Our admissions and hospital days are down by over 60%. Our um, visits to specialists and subspecialized care are down by over 60%. Our health outcomes are dramatically improved. So our diabetes outcomes, asthma, HIV, put us in the top 25th percentile for the nation. We used to be in the bottom 5th percentile because we have a very at-risk, complicated population. And our staff turnover is one-fifth of where it used to be. So happier people, better clinical outcomes, dramatically reduced utilization of high-cost areas, so lower total cost. 
and what has been the impact on costs? It's about um, half per person per year of what it used to be because so much less emergency room and hospital. If you get to a per member per month or per member per year cost amount, we're more comparable to the European spend. Somewhere between three and a half and four and a half thousand dollars a year per person per year, which is about half of the national average in the US, especially for a more complicated population. What advice can you give us for creating similar models in our local health systems? Moving to local control and local ownership was a pivotal change for us. Understanding that the control at the individual level lies with the individual in the context of their family was very pivotal. So if I were to give the NHS advice, I would suggest put the pots of money together, give control locally, allow them to propose back structures and processes they'd like to use, listen deeply to the customer voice in the community, and then try and structure that into something that's responsive in a way that people will want to own and drive their own health journey instead of having it being done to them or being done for them. If all you ever think about is the car and how to make the car better, all you will ever have is a better, faster, safer version of the car. But if you understand its purpose is to transport people from point A to point B, you back up, you start to think about that purpose, and you allow yourself to get outside of the limits of a car, you can come up with whole different ways of transporting people from point A to point B. And it's probably obvious what I'm trying to do here, but healthcare's purpose is not the sustaining of health care. It's not maintaining the perfect uh, version of the wrong model or a limited model, it's to improve the health of populations of people longitudinally over time, period. If that's true, then how we do things may be good for some parts of what we're trying to do, but not everything we're trying to do. If you're trying to transport people really efficiently, you probably do need some cars, but you may need some bicycles and some keys and skis and some trains and some airplanes. You may need a whole range of different transportation options for different purposes at different times. Same thing in healthcare. Instead of being stuck in one model as we have been for 75 to 100 years, depending on when you think the modern medical model started, instead of using that for everything, maybe it's just one piece of what we really need to get a whole population to better health over time. You with me? Okay. If you're gonna try and change the health of a population longitudinally over time. If that's your purpose, you need to understand not just the philosophy that we're going to try and do health, not health care as our central purpose. You need to then understand what are the levers you have to pull? Where are you going to exert change? All right. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I do. If you're interested in learning more, go to aspirationalhealthcare.com. Thank you for attending today and have a wonderful day.